you guys. Our text this morning is in 1 John chapter 3. If you'd like to look there, I'm going to read it for us right now, and then we'll look back at it in a few moments. 1 John chapter 3, I'm going to read verses 1 through 5. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. A recent uh, Christianity Today article cited um, survey data that revealed that 68% of men who describe themselves as Christian, so almost seven out of every ten Christian men in America, look at pornography. That's true, even though 65% of all American men, Christian or not, say that viewing porn is morally wrong. But even that conviction is changing. Younger people, in ever greater numbers, are saying that viewing porn is totally appropriate as an expression of one's sexuality. And many, and I'm going to borrow Ann Wilson's term again, many clever clogs of social liberalism talk as if viewing pornography is natural and healthy. If someone suggests that viewing or making porn is wrong, They mock them as ridiculous Victorian-age prudes who are all hung up on outdated sexual mores. And some of those clever cogs happen to be female. And, And they accuse the porn industry of discrimination, since the vast majority of porn is made for men. They think there ought to be more porn made exclusively for women. And what about children? In a survey taken of teen boys, 35% say they have viewed porn online, and I quote, too many times to count. More than half of boys and a third of all girls have viewed their first pornographic images before they turned 13 years old. 64% of young men and 18% of young women say that they view pornography on a weekly basis. Let me give you another surprising stat. 40 to 50% of pastors, depending on the survey you look at, admit to struggling with porn addiction. In other words, approximately one out of two pastors, male pastors in America, struggle with porn addiction. Our country and our world have been hit by a pornographic tsunami, most of which 
originates right here in the United States, the supposed bastion of Christian values. You remember how we all took offense when the late Ayatollah Khomeini called America the great Satan? We said he was a madman. He was a crazy, violent extremist. Well, whether he was that or not, I don't know. But when you think of how U.S. companies are spewing pornographic images of sexual violence around the world, it gives you pause. What's so bad about porn? Leave aside for a moment, but don't forget the fact that pornography is demeaning to women. It glorifies violence, abuses the women and girls whose images are being used. Leave that aside for the moment, but don't forget that the women used in pornographic images and films are often sexually abused and drug addicted, and that the people who buy porn or visit pornographic websites actually are supporting the monsters who inflict that abuse. But leave that aside for the moment and consider what pornography does to the person who looks at it. A man who is in the habit of viewing porn is creating neural pathways in his brain that become, for lack of a better term, wider every time he looks. Dr. William Struther says that those neural pathways become the automatic pathway through which interactions with women are routed. So say you have two men who are in conversation out in the lobby with a woman, and one of them is a regular porn viewer and the other is not. The brain of the one man who looks at porn will actually operate differently from the brain of the man who doesn't. Here's something else. Porn desensitizes people. They feel less. Less outrage, less excitement, less everything. In her book, Pornified, the the journalist Pamela Paul says that a person addicted to porn begins to find the real world boring and real people disinteresting. Let me give you one more stat. According to a detailed meta-analysis of the porn industry in the U.S., porn generated about $13 billion in revenue in 2006. That's more than Major League Baseball. That's more than the NFL. That's more than the Hollywood box office generated worldwide in 2006. Now, The U.S. porn industry is going through a downturn. That's good news. But the reason it's going through a downturn is not good news. Free Internet porn, mostly generated in Asia, is flooding the market and reducing U.S. companies' share of the profits. Now, it's in this context that we need to talk about the biblical idea of purity. We can't separate it out and talk about it in the context of our little building on Sunday mornings, but in this context. And here's something at the very get-go that is absolutely critical to understand. Biblical purity includes sexual purity, but it is not limited to sexual purity. Biblical purity involves the whole person. Someone who tries to be sexually pure 
and think a high school kid who takes a pledge to wait for sex until married will probably fail at that unless she's also aiming for purity in the rest of her life. And statistics bear that out. Do you know teenagers from churches, mostly fundamentalist churches, where sexual purity is frequently taught are more likely than any other teens to get pregnant before they're married? See, the clever clogs like to say it's because those kids aren't using protection. And they're right. But there's an even more fundamental reason. Those kids imagine that they can be sexually pure without being pure in heart and mind. They can't. It's like trying to build a house from the roof down. It doesn't work. You have to start with the foundation. And you know what? Teenagers aren't the only ones dealing with this. The incidence of sexually transmitted diseases is skyrocketing in retirement communities. The New York Times reported a fit, approximately, depending on which STD you're talking about, a 50% increase in STDs and retirees in just the last 10 years. So whether you're a teen or a retiree, sexual purity is part of a life of purity. And it is to that life that we as followers of Jesus are called, to a life of purity. So Paul writes to his apprentice, Timothy, in what is the theme verse for this year's family month, to set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. What does it look like to set an example of purity in what is a very impure world? And how do we do that? How do we become an example of purity? Well, to understand that, we need to know what Paul had in mind when he used the word purity. And there are a variety of words in the Bible that are translated as purity. Our word only appears one other time in the Bible. But almost all of those words are cognates. That is, they're different evolutions of one root word. Something that is pure is not mixed. That's the idea. Pure table salt, for example, will be comprised of sodium and chloride. There won't be any lead in it or carbon in it. Now, what do we mean when we talk about a pure person? Now, that's a more difficult question to answer because the Bible comes at it in different ways. In the Old Testament, the idea of purity was most often related to worship rituals. Ritual purity required people to conform to certain standards in order to engage in worship ceremonies. Behind those purity standards, and there are a lot of them, read Leviticus for them, behind those purity standards is a very important idea. The idea that God is special. You can't just approach him in any way you choose. There are standards to be met, rules to be followed. So, for example, if you're living in in the Old Testament times, and you're planning on going to the temple tomorrow to offer a sacrifice, say, for sin, or if tomorrow was a day of corporate worship, maybe it was the Day of Atonement, you had better be ritually pure. You better be meeting those standards of ritual purity set out mostly in Leviticus. It's God, the maker of heaven and earth, that you're going to encounter. He's special, and you'd better treat him as such. We would do well to remember that. 
those ritual purity laws impressed on people the idea that God is different, that he is special, that those who belong to him will be different as well. In a sense, all those rules about purity, those ritual purity rules, were like the gutter rails on the lanes at a bowling alley nowadays. Have you been to a bowling alley recently? If you take your child bowling or Lockwood people bowling, it doesn't matter which, you can program the gutter rails to pop up whenever it's, it's your child's turn to bowl. And they keep the ball on the lane so that it makes contact with the pins. Now, the rails, they aren't there so that the child can hit them, but so that he or she can hit the pins. And as the child gets better and better at bowling, the rails become less necessary and are eventually left behind. And so with the ritual purity laws. They were never intended to be an end in themselves. They were meant to help people remain in a place where they could come in contact with God, which they couldn't do if they were in the proverbial gutter. Those Old Testament purity laws only occasionally are mentioned in the New Testament. And when they are, it's almost always in the context of someone condemning the hypocrisy of those who keep the purity laws, but do it with impure lives and hearts. The emphasis in the New Testament, and I say that, but it's also very present in the Old Testament, the emphasis in the New Testament is almost exclusively on the kind of interior moral purity that makes the external purity laws unnecessary. The purity with which Jesus and others were concerned is a purity of mind and of heart. If a person has an increasingly pure heart and mind, all the other issues are bound to come right in time. Now, the very nature of purity suggests the absence of foreign or alien elements. So pure gold does not have copper in it. Pure silver doesn't have iron in it. Pure water doesn't have nitrates in it. A pure person doesn't have... What doesn't a pure person have in him or her? A pure person, and to date there's only been one, perfectly pure person. A pure person has no God resistance in him. Put another way, he has no determination to have or do what God forbids. Put another way, he has no sin. As I said, there's to date only been one pure person, and that was Jesus. But the people who belong to Jesus, you and me, if we belong to Jesus, who've entrusted our lives to him, who have confidence in him and what he's done, who share the life of his spirit, those people are trying to be like him. They are purifying themselves, dealing with the impurities in their hearts and minds and hands as they become aware of them. That's the point that St. John makes in 1 John 3.3, which I read to you at the beginning. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. This orientation towards purity is characteristic of the kind of life that Jesus gives to people. The purity orientation, it comes pre-installed with the life. It's part of the package. Now, if you think that you're a Christian but don't have that purity orientation, something's wrong. Now, it needs to be said that it takes a lifetime and more for a Christian to get everything cleaned up, to get purified, 
because we start off with lots of impurities. But if a person doesn't even desire to be pure, something's not right. John's letter, and by the way, it really isn't a letter at all. We call it an epistle, but the form is a different kind of form. It's, it's an, a sermon of sorts. It's an exposition of how the eternal kind of life operates in humans. When the eternal kind of life is imparted to a human, John says, here's how it works. One of its characteristics of the eternal kind of life in a human is this orientation toward purity. Or another way of putting it is this. The eternal kind of life is always reforming the human person in the image of its source, in the image of Jesus. That's why anyone who has hope in him purifies himself just as he he is pure. And that means that if you have believed in Jesus, you have a kind of immune system that rejects sin or any influence that is alien to the life of God in you. When a Christian is healthy, that spiritual immune system is actively protecting him or her from harm. That rejection response to sin, though, can be compromised and suppressed by distraction and self-deception. And that's very dangerous. Now I say again, this is true of people who have the eternal kind of life, the divine life that comes from God through his spirit to the people who believe in his son. The only way to have that life is to receive it from God through faith in Jesus. Unless you've done that, you don't have that kind of life nor the spiritual immune system that goes with it, nor the rejection response to impurities. And that means you don't have the only kind of life that's capable of living in heaven. Everything depends on putting yourself in God's hands and receiving this life into yourself. If you've already received that life, there are things that can help you avoid the distraction and self-deception that compromise your spiritual immune system and leave you impure. There are two things like that in our text. And the first is this. It is vital to remember who you really are. That's verse 1. And the second thing is you must think about who you're really going to be. That's verse 2. Because, you see, it's the people who remember these things and think about them who purify themselves just as he is pure. That's verse 3. Remembering who we are is a great motivation to stay pure. If, for example, the clever clogs think it won't hurt them to look at porn, what can anyone do? But I'm not a clever clog. I'm a child of the awesome, joyful, satisfied, and always satisfying God. I share his life. I'm not like everybody else. I am by a miracle of God's kindness and graciousness, his child. I belong to his family and his family behaves in certain ways. A pastor took in a 12 year old boy into his home. A 12 year old boy's parents had died. He'd been raised in a rough home. They both died from drug overdoses. 
He didn't know anything about a normal home, this boy. And so several times a day, the pastor or his wife would have to say to that boy, that's not how we behave in this family. Or you don't have to scream or fight to get what you want. Or we expect you to show respect in this family. The boy, that boy didn't earn his way into that family at all. He was there because of their love and kindness and grace. He didn't have to behave a certain way to become part of the family. But now that he was part of the family, there was a family way to behave. And there were certain ways the family didn't behave. And that was tough for this kid. He brought all kinds of impurities with him into his new family. And that made his new way of life difficult. He often had to be reminded of his new identity. And so do we. We're not like everyone else. We're God's children. By his love and kindness and grace, we're part of his family. And you know what? His family doesn't look at porn. His family doesn't turn people into objects, doesn't ridicule, doesn't scorn people because of the color of the skin or the dollar amount on their paychecks. But we, like that boy, bring a lot of that stuff with us into God's family. God's Spirit often has to say to us, that's not how we behave in this family. But because I know who I am, a child of God, I want to purify myself. I want to be like Jesus. I need to be reminded of who I am. I also need to be... I also need to be reminded of who I'm going to be. Verse 2 says, Dear friends, now we're children of God, and what we shall be has not yet been made known. By the way, that's a cognate of the word that we get the word agnostic from. John was agnostic about just what we were going to be in the future. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. We who are children of God through faith in Jesus are going to be like Jesus, every one of us. No one will be more like him than any other, though some will be like him in small, and some will be like him in big, depending on what they've done in this life. All will be as full of his beauty and glory and joy as they can possibly be. But what's possible for some will be far greater than what's possible for others, depending on what they do in this life. A thimble can hold perfectly pure water, but so can a 10,000-gallon fountain. All the blessed will be filled with the life that is perfectly pure, but some will have much more room for that life than others. Our potential then depends on our purity now. The more impurities that are removed in this age, the greater we shall be in the age to come. If you get a hold of that fact, that what you do now makes a difference in what you'll be then, you'll purify yourself just as he is pure. Now's the time to do that, not later. But how do we do that?
I read this week about an explosion in a power plant in Oklahoma that left a thick coat of coal dust all over everything in one of the buildings. The maintenance crew came in there and saw what had happened. A turbine had exploded, it overheated, and, and the explosion had caused the, as a coal-powered plant, coal dust everywhere. The maintenance crew estimated it would take two months to clean up. Do you know what? There are more impurities in our heart than in that power plant. I mean, we can pretend it's not so, but it is so. How can we ever set about purifying our hands and our hearts, being examples of purity in this world? Let me suggest a couple of things. And the first is this. If you don't want to get dirty, don't play in the mud. Remove yourself from, and this is the Apostle Paul, everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Now, I could probably list some of the things that contaminate body and spirit. But don't you have a pretty good idea of what those things are already? If something is clouding your vision of God's love and grace, if something is leaving you feeling grimy, if it causes you to hold back from praying or going to church or worshiping, then remove yourself from it. Now, some people hear that and they think, well, that's just old-fashioned, fundamentalist, self-righteous moralizing. And maybe they're right. But I would encourage you to consider the possibility that it's rather the Holy Spirit speaking through the Apostle Paul. See, if you listen to our culture rather than to the Spirit about this, you'll never make any progress. And worse, you'll make it difficult for your children and grandchildren to make any progress. So get away from the things that contaminate you, and that will take resolve. Partly because of habit but partly because of the people around us. Doing that will invite ridicule and, and rejection. But if others turn you out, God the Father will take you in. If they ridicule you, he will honor you. So get away from the things that contaminate body and spirit. Another thing you can do, and this is fundamental is determined to live in the light. No more secrets. Complete transparency. If when I said secrets, your mind went to something right away, then I'm talking to you. St. John says, if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from every sin. Are you hiding something? That's the place you'll find impurities. Come in out of the dark. Live in the light. Confess your sins, and God will not only forgive you, he will purify you from unrighteousness. That's 1 John 1, 9. Nothing hidden. Live in the light. Determine that that's going to be true of you. A third thing you can do is obey the truth that God has already spoken to you. This is a huge thing, too. So many of us go around having God speak to us. God has spoken to us about some particular thing, and we've not done it. We've left it in the background. The Apostle Peter writes, you have purified yourselves, how? By obeying the truth. When God speaks truth into your life, he's giving you the opportunity to adjust, to correspond to the truth. 
And that has a purifying effect on your life. And it has another result, too, and it's a beautiful one. It enables you to love people sincerely. Insincerity is the result of impurity. You can start to change that by obeying the truth God has already spoken to you. If there's something God said to you and you haven't done anything about, don't let another week go by without doing it. And let me give you one last thing. Earlier we were talking about the ritual purity laws in the Old Testament. Those laws basically divided into two categories. What to do before encountering impurities, because remember, God is special. And what to do after encountering impurities. In the first category, all those laws instructing people how to avoid impurity. Those laws are like the rails of the bowling alley, which are meant to keep a person out of the gutter. And the second category are the instructions about what you do after you're already impure, after you've been in the gutter. The one constant in that second category is that it takes blood of a perfect sacrifice to remove impurity. Christ came to present the final perfect sacrifice. His sacrifice can be applied to our lives. It's the only way for us to be clean. John says it's the blood of God's son, Jesus, that purifies us from every sin. Thinking of those Old Testament laws, the author of Hebrews writes that the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. Those laws prepared us for the blood of Christ, which alone can cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. See, it's still true that God is special. You still can't come to him any way you choose. You can only come to him in the way he chooses, and he has chosen that way. It's through Jesus Christ. The blood of the perfect sacrifice can be applied to our lives. Trust God and accept what he's done on your behalf through the sacrifice of his son. Ask him to forgive and cleanse you and give you the eternal kind of life. It will change your trajectory in the present and your destiny forever. All right, let's pray. And maybe God God has made it clear to you that you have a decision to make today. I'm just going to give you a moment to do that with the Lord. Oh, God, hear our prayers and make them in the name of Jesus. And, Father, help us remember our prayers. For Jesus' sake, amen. Mm -hmm.